Welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So, we're continuing our, because it's summer, you know, you're going to go into the water. We're, kinda, we're continuing our underwater sequel sea creature month, I guess. It's not really in the same month, but it makes sense in our minds. Last was the last Sharknado, and next are these little tiny creatures that can get you. We're talking Piranha 2, The Spawning, directed by James Cameron, has the amazing, oh my god, I love Lance Hendrickson and so much, love him, and of course, it led me to interview this week's guest, I think she's a singer first, activist, and actress, Carol Davis. I loved talking to Carol because I got to revisit so many films. She was in so many movies I loved growing up. Piranha 2, I remember seeing that like years ago. A buddy's brother showed it to me. But the Flamingo Kid, oh my God. The cast in that movie, if you haven't seen it, just a young Matt Dillon. You got just so many people in that movie that, and you got to watch it. Just go watch it. And of course, Carol's in it, so you got to watch that And, of course, Mannequin, she plays Roxy, Andrew McCarthy's girlfriend, who has a serious gripe in that movie because he's in love with a mannequin, you know? And she was not going to let him uh, have that happen. So, uh, but, yeah. And uh, Shrimp on the Barbie, where she has a great story about her scene with Vernon Wells is kind of legendary. But it's like the acting, it's great. Everything she does, her credits, all amazing. But her singing career is what fascinates me even more she was like playing in clubs in new york and paris or wherever else she traveled around the world when it came to her singing she was always that 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 was the thing but she loved acting because she could choose a film like she said with prana too oh it's filming there i'll do that if i can go there why not why not i can make money and travel And there she has a great story about something she told me that she has not thought about in years was two words I never thought I'd put together. Hakami. She actually went and lived with a guy. I'll let her tell the full story, but it's wild. (laughs) And her origin story, you're going to laugh. It's like so many of these people I interview, it's never like, yeah, I went to the audition and I got it. And that's how I got into Hollywood. There's always something that happens, either a friend in Carol's case or just these funny like situations that come up and hers is uh one of my favorites i think <laughs> just the way it happens and her singing the story about prince you got to listen to the end because there's a story about prince that just is unreal to me you know but uh i'll let her tell it and uh man I'm so excited that I got a chance to talk with her because she's an activist as well. So we talked about being a vegetarian and what she does for, you know, dogs in California and animals. She's, uh, she's one of the good ones. And, uh, before I start the interview, please rate us wherever you're listening, you know, five stars. Cause the, the more you rate, the more you share better people have a chance of listening to us. Not even our, our sequel reviews, which are so much fun and we love to do them. But just getting these people's stories out there is like Carol's and so many other folks in Hollywood in front of the camera and behind the camera that just have these great stories and about uh, something they love. And I know you're going to love singer, actress, activist, the amazing Carol Davis. 
Who are you? Great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Oh, man. This is so awesome. I'm so excited to pick your brain because not only, obviously, I like your teacher. Yeah, this is an actor. I helped write a book, uh, Larry Hankin. He paints this stuff. He's been in a million things. I don't know. If, I don't think you've ever worked with him, but uh, he was on Seinfeld, Friends, like 200. That's big, Larry Hankin, he's a big time character actor. He's been in a million things. If you looked him up, you'd be like, oh, I've seen that face. Yeah, yeah. And he, Anyway, I love elephants, of course. <laughs> but yeah, so you didn't like the acting, singing, and the activism, and like I always like I've always adopted my whole life like dogs, and even the two dogs we have now are two rescues that are the puppies of a rescue. So like we've uh, me and my wife have always been that, and then even growing up we always rescued. So reading about that about you is very uh, hits home, I guess you know. Cool. So, uh, your story is one that, like, no one that I've interviewed before, just because you've kind <laughs> of done it all and yeah. just your childhood. So, you were, you grew up in, in, Lo- well, you're born in London, but you grew up so many different places, right? I did. I grew up in a lot of different countries. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, quite the experience. I guess in a way it's good, and in another way it's not so great. Um, yeah. you, know, you make the best of it. I mean, I when I was growing up in all these different countries, I felt like, oh, all I really, really wanted was one place to call home. And now in retrospect, having grown up in all those different cultures, I feel like it's made me who I am today and all the sadness of not having a real home home or the same friends growing up with. Uh, that it's made me, um, you know, stronger and more adaptable, really. It's made me very adaptable. Like, you could kind of, like, pick me up and drop me anywhere. And I know I can probably survive, except yeah. maybe Mar- Mario Paul. But um, I think pretty much anywhere you could put me anywhere, and, I, you know, I, I, I know that I'd be okay. Well, that's good. Wait, wait, were your parents, were like, military or just business? Um, they're both the same, you know. No, they are. Yeah, they are. Military and business are one and the same. <laughs> that is true. You may as well put them in the same sentence, so I'll say yeah to both. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, just... and more specifically, defense intelligence. Oh, okay. I was just looking at the place. I'm thinking Hawaii, that's a big one. So I've interviewed a few actors that had that kind of like growing up in all these different places one that you kind of worked with on uh, Star Trek Voyager, Tim Russ, he grew up in a million different places until until his teen years. He wasn't in New York City like yourself, but he was in upstate New York. That's where his dad was uh, stationed. So that's where his formative years happened. But so you hit New York City we, as we, we all, you know, all those of us who have grown up around the world like that, either yeah. because of military or defense intelligence or. Or in other countries too, because we would always go to international schools. You, you, you and I'm in touch with some of them still, like oh, my cool. old friend who I grew up with around the world. Um, we we're just like expat brats, yeah, expats. Yeah, so America's very exotic to us. No, it's yeah, America's be. the most exotic country of all. Trust and me. it's the hardest one to learn the language. I feel so bad when people have to. 
learn English because of, well, one word can mean so many different things. It's English is the one language that everybody speaks though. No, that is true. Yes. Everybody around the world, you can get by with a little bit of English. <laughs> so when did it all start? Like, what was your first love? <clears throat> was it trying was to my, do acting? What was my first love? My, I think my first love was not acting at all. No. Really? Okay. No, 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 no. You're asking me my first love, like my first love in what category? I'm talking about like when it comes to like uh, singing or acting, like you're too, like m- career-wise. I know obviously there's other passions that I'm sure you have. Say, I would say definitely music. Yeah. I was, and, and within the category of music, I would say songwriting. And, um, you know, it's really embarrassing, but I was writing songs as a little kid and they were always about animals. Oh, wow. No, that's not yeah. embarrassing. Look at I always, I always wrote songs about animals. <laughs> I did. I think the first song I ever wrote, and there's a really embarrassing recording of it somewhere in my mother's apartment in New York. That's called Pretty, Pretty Dogs Running Wild. <laughs> I must have been six. <laughs> Pretty Dogs Running Wild. Yeah, that would be a really big hit today. Oh, man, you should lay that down. You're a little smelly cat, you know? Yeah. (laughs) What fueled the music? Was there music, like, around your house growing up, or? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. My my father was a big music buff, but specifically opera. So, you know, he used to take me to the ballet, and he took me to the symphony and and to the opera when I was very, very young, when I was very little. So I grew up around that. So with your love being songwriting, how did acting come about? Was it just being in the city or? Oh, no. Big mistake. Big mistake. (laughs) Total, total mistake. Um, An old friend of mine, Corrine, was reading for uh, a movie uh, called, what was the name of that movie? I can't even remember the name of the movie. It was really bad. Just like a really like D movie, like D D movie. D. Yeah, let's be honest, it's a D movie. And she was reading for it. She was a friend of mine, and the role called for someone who spoke Italian and who could sing. At the time, I was singing in clubs every night. You know, that's what I was doing. I was singing. Yeah, yeah. And and of course, you know, having grown up in Italy. I, I speak Italian and my grandfather was Italian. So, you know, Italian's just another, another language that I know, you know, not bragging, it just is. Yeah. And, and so she asked me to kind of tutor her along with the singing and the, the opera singing and in Italian. So, you know, I grew up with Italian opera, so I can do it. I did it in Star Trek yeah. and yeah. And uh, so I went with her for moral support. And I'm in this really dingy office in midtown Manhattan with her. And, you know, I'm really young, like 20, you know, a kid. And she goes in, she completely messes up the audition. Just, she didn't have any talent that way. Her talents are elsewhere. Yeah. Not in acting or singing. So the guy comes out, the casting director comes out and he goes, next, next, you know, you. And he points to me and he goes, you. Can you speak Italian? And I said, "Si, si." Posso parlare italiano? And 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 he says, "Do you know how to sing? Can you carry a tune?" And I said, "Yes, I'm a professional singer." <laughs> so he goes, "Come in." So I look at my friend and I go, 
<laughs> you know, it's not cool, but she says, just go, just do, I'd rather you got it than somebody else. So, yeah, you know, go ahead. So a week later, I'm in Berlin shooting this movie and I got $50,000 in the bank. That's how it happened. Right. And to please. me, that was a lot of money. That was a lot of money back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is in the Illyrian age. You know, <laughs> we're talking a long time ago. But um, that was a lot of money to me. I was like, whoa, I can pay a lot of stuff back. Yeah. And just that we'll talk about it in a little bit, but like and the Flamingo. I pay my rent and, yeah. and Nelson. No, in the Flamingo Kid, that is what he's selling to Matt Dillon. He's saying, kid, you can be making 50 grand a year. And that Are was you talking 19- about my dad, Richard Crenna. Yes, your dad, Richard Crenna. My yes. dad, my my movie father, Richard Crenna. Yeah, fifty grand. He's selling it as that is like, hey, and that's and that's before the time. So yeah, fifty grand was a lot of money back then. Fifty grand was a lot of money before you were born. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're you're right on the nose. I was born in '86, so yeah. See? See that the 50 grand was, was, was a lot of money then, you know? And I was like, well, sure. I'm going to do this shitty movie. I'm going to be in Berlin. I had a great time. Who doesn't have a great time in Berlin? I mean, unless it's, you know, in the 1940s, but the time that I was there, we were having a great time. So is that what it was? The idea of traveling? Cause you're so used to that with growing up. Always chose my movies by location. That's great. If it was a (laughs) shitty movie in a great location, and a really good movie in a bad location, I got on a plane. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I know it's really stupid now in retrospect, but that's the way it went. I just, <laughs> it's just the way it went. I did not choose my movies by project. I chose them based on where I was going. Where can I go? Where was a Piranha 2 shot? <gasps> that was shot in the Cayman Islands and Jamaica. And that's why I did Piranha. <laughs> With James Cameron, because you know James Cameron wasn't James Cameron then. No, he was worth less than the fifty thousand then. <laughs> this was James Cameron before it was James Cameron. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I wanted to go to Jamaica. It was cold, and I wanted to go to Jamaica. Oh, oh, and I got I got my Patty diving license on that movie too. Oh, really? That movie was- I mean, it was like a really, really crappy movie, but I did learn how to dive and I did get my diving license. And you got paid and you're on vacation. Of course. Of course. And I worked with James Cameron. So when you, after you get that role, when you do the Italian, the singing and you go to Berlin, is that when you thought about going to acting school? Like right after that? Yeah, I figured, whoa, I better learn. (laughs) I better learn this stuff, you know. (laughs) I better go to school. So I did the two-year course at the, uh, you know, the actor studio down there. Yeah, that's a big deal. Not a lot of people get in. So you had some kind of... The acting studio was the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. Yeah. Okay, some people call it the actor studio, but they're actually two different things. The actor studio was a very, very exclusive thing that very few people got into. But I did take a class with Lee Strasberg. Nice. I did. Yeah, I got to see him before he croaked. Yeah, and he got to see me. Yeah, he got to see you. He got to see me doing the most ridiculous acting exercises the world has ever known. What a ridiculous course that was, that two-year graduate course. 
What, what were some of the things that you had to do? Yeah, that were I so didn't ridiculous? look at anything that I use in acting. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. It was complete bullshit. <laughs> well, there must have been some other people in there in the eight, around that time in the early 80s in New York. Everybody right? went to that school. Everybody yeah. went to that school. Oh, yeah. But, you know, you can't go to that school and then come out and say it was stupid. Because yeah. if you go if you go in and out of that school and say that it's stupid, you could risk jobs. And I was always, you know, a big male. So, and I don't care anymore. No, no, like it doesn't really like who am I? He's gone. Lisa Jasberg is dead. Yeah, and and it was a really dumb school. I mean, they had you doing really dumb stuff. Like you go you go into the school, and it was dirty. First of all, it was dirty, and I hate dirt. You'd go in there and you'd sit on these really cheap ass chairs and you'd be on the stage in a chair, but the most uncomfortable chair that you can remember from middle school. Yeah. And you'd have to relax into the chair. Now you can't relax in a chair, in a hard chair that's wobbling. And you'd have to relax and you'd have to let it all go, you know, that let it all go thing. <laughs> Which I still find obnoxious. <laughs> and you'd have to let everything go and like you'd hang your head down and some people would be drooling and it's like, let it go, let it go. And all these who are now famous actors would be going, <laughs> you have to like loosen all the muscles in your face and, and just like and flap your arms around and, and you couldn't hold your head up. You weren't allowed to hold your head up. And it's like, could you please tell me how this prepares me for, for Hollywood? please. It doesn't. It does not, except for maybe a meeting with Weinstein. (laughs) (laughs) Like that could either save you or get you raped. I don't know. (laughs) Depending on what mood he was in. Yeah. (laughs) That was ridiculous. That's crazy. I wonder how, I wonder what made that the place to go to? Oh, the reputation of, yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, the reputation of that school because of all the big actors that came out of there. I mean, everybody, Christopher Walken, Al Pacino, I mean, name it. They, they all came out of there and they were all doing it. They were all they were drooling. All they were all doing it. They were all doing it, not complaining about it. Yeah. So the first movie was Piranha 2. Was that the first? That wasn't the first one. What was the one in Berlin? No, that- no I remember the name. It's called COD. Okay. C-O-D. Yeah, yeah. C-O-D. Really dumb movie. You won't believe. Wait a minute. You will not believe who was in that movie. And it was not a porn movie. It was just a B movie, like, just a B movie that opened up in theaters for, like, one week and bombed. Okay? I saw who was in there. Ron Jeremy was in there. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the people you have to endure in this business. But then after that, you get Piranha 2, even though as silly as it is, I got to ask, you're, you're seeing, when they tell you, like, you just wanted to go because you're like, hey, you know what? I get paid. I'm going to be able to go somewhere, you know, Jamaica, Cayman Islands. But the way the, the whole Piranha in that movie, the way you're like holding it on your own neck, pretty much. Did you read the article on Entertainment Weekly no. that I was interviewed for in that? I got to read oh. it. They did a fantastic series of articles about cool. Piranha 
in-depth article about the behind the scenes of the Piranha movies. Oh, I got to read them. Hilarious. Hilarious. Was it something recently? Did they do it for like the 40th anniversary or something? Or Years ago, but it's really, really fun. I'll check it out. It's really funny because it's it, it was it was outrageously bad. For example, we didn't have a, a very big budget, and we one of the scenes was in a morgue. Yep. And we shot in a morgue. <laughs> wow. We actually shot in the morgue. We were in the morgue, shooting in the morgue. That was that morgue with like that dingy door. That was a morgue in the Cayman Islands. Yes, there was a morgue. Now that morgue was in Jamaica. It was a Jamaican morgue. Okay. Need I say more? What happens in that morgue is something I would never. What happens in that morgue is a lot of pot smoking just to get through the night. I bet. (laughs) I bet. Just to get through the night. And, you know, James Cameron, love him. Especially now that he's like a vegan activist and all that. I just adore the guy. Yeah. But at the time, he was who he is today, meaning that he was always really concerned about getting the right shot. He really wanted it to look good. And he didn't have the budget. And he got fired. And, yeah. And the producer, whose name was Ovidio... Asinitis. Oh my God. A Greek man who was producing this B movie fired James Cameron because James Cameron was spending too much time with the setups on the water. You know, we had the underwater camera, we had the above water camera, and you had to seamlessly go from above water to underwater. And he really wanted this to look technically great. And to some degree, he achieved that. Yeah, it with looks with good. almost no budget. Yeah. And so he gets fired. And then oh, we, we ended up calling him, as a joke, we called him Ovidio Asinitis, which isn't really all that different than his actual No, name. it sounds pretty close. Ovidio. And he was, he was Greek, but had been raised in Italy. So his first language was Italian, not Greek. And he had this really thick Italian accent. And the crew was all from the last James Bond movie. And they were all Italians. The last James Bond movie that was made before 1982. So we'll have to look that one up. But they had all come straight from a James Bond movie, the special effects people. And it was so low budget that they were all laughing, but they made great spaghetti. (laughs) 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 On the beach, they were the best means. So a video takes over the shoot, and we have this, like, one big crowd scene there. And it's the night of the spawning. And he's telling 200 Jamaican extras all right, and now you all have to come out here and you have to all say in the unison, we wanted the fish. We wanted the fish. He said, we want the fish. And he's, you know, this Greek guy saying, we wanted the fish with an Italian accent. And these Jamaican extras who were getting paid God knows what, but, you know, like they were having a good time too. We were all having a great time in between shots, you know. So when the shot is, I was like, okay, we wanted a fish. And so you have all these, they have no idea what he's asking them to say. So you have all these Jamaican extras going, we wanted a fish. We wanted a fish. They don't even know what they're saying. It's pretty funny. Uh, How much of the movie was, did James do? How much of the movie? 
was he there for like half of it? Three quarters of it? Three quarters of it. Oh, okay. Oh, he was definitely there for three quarters of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, It was fun. We had a lot of fun. I mean, the shooting in the morgue was not so much fun, but the rest of it was fun. And the meals that they made, that Italian crew, oh, my goodness. That's great. Oh, yeah. It was great. It was great. And... And I and I got myself a new boyfriend on the set. He he was the assistant to the cinematographer, and he was the son of the famous cinematographer who did all the Woody Allen movies. Wow, De Palma. Oh, okay. And, yeah, and he was like a hardcore communist. And as soon as we wrapped, he took me to Italy to his olive farm, where he put me to work on an olive farm. And so I worked on an olive farm with a bunch of communists coming out of that movie. <laughs> that was fun. How long did that last? Not long. Okay, I hope so. Not long. We had a huge fight about me cleaning the toilet. <laughs> and he was telling me, what's the matter with you that you can't you think you're a princess, you can't clean a toilet? It's like, no, I'm never going to clean your toilet. I clean my toilet, not your toilet. <laughs> but I learned how to make olive oil. So it was worth it. Yeah. It was worth it. Yeah. He was really hot, really hot communist. Yeah. And hot. <laughs> really hot commie. And he taught me how to make olive oil. And his mother loved me. Oh. She wanted to keep me as some kind of weird Hollywood slave. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. <laughs> uh, hot commie. I never thought I would hear those two words together, but. I had one. You had one. You had one. <laughs> so, so after this, the hot commie, you come back to the States, I'm sure. Right? I'm hot commie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You come back to the States and you're interview, by the way, no one has ever gotten me to talk about the hot commie. Look at that. This is something. Look at that. No, no one has ever gotten me to talk about the hot commie. (laughs) Who wanted me to clean toilets and on an olive farm. Okay. (laughs) So you get back and so you were doing like the, the clubs in New York and Paris all throughout the 80s. I I was thinking wherever I was, wherever I went, I would do a club. Wow. Wherever I went, when I was working on the olive on the olive farm, I was singing in the village cafe. I'm, I'm he, always he would let you out for a little bit. <laughs> of course, he had to let me out. Yeah. In between, you know, picking olives in the hot sun all day. Oh my god! Needed an outlet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so one thing I watched that was pretty cool today. I watched the, your A Team episode. Oh God. Oh my God. This is like embarrassing. This is embarrassing. Another crappy show. Another crummy show. Oh, you didn't like that? You know, I love George Papart. It was really, really nice working with George Papart. He was a major movie star. I don't know if anybody remembers, but he was a huge, huge movie star at one time. And I was just a young actress and he was a sweetheart. Just a really nice guy. Yeah. Mr. T, something else. (laughs) Yeah. Mr. T. Good old Mr. T. But now, I just always thought that show was ridiculous. So when I saw you were in one, I was like, I gotta watch it because it was on. Uh, so it was stupid. 
free on oh every episode people just get shot near and then they just die out of the they dive out of the way there's so many missed shots in all those shows i, I don't know what to tell you and it was on for six years I don't even know what to say about the 18, other than I just got a check for it, like in my pile of checks today. Oh, nice. Look at that. My few cents from Tubi will be there in the next check that you get. It, but it'll, it's, it's amazing. The 18 just keeps on paying. So many of those shows that people are on, they're like, I can't believe that I did a, a half a day on this movie and I'm still getting checked. Like, it's pretty wild the way that works out. Manila, now let's talk about, uh, you mentioned it before, The Flamingo Kid. I love that. That movie I love. That's one of the movies I made that I love that holds up. I still love that movie. And I love the experience of working on that movie. That was a really good script. Yeah. It was a really good movie. I loved everyone on the movie. What a privilege it was to be in that ensemble cast major privilege to, to have done that film and everybody so, in the beginning of their careers like besides like richard krenna and hector but you look at all the younger people in that movie that was probably their earliest roles yeah we were all kids look at us now <laughs> i'm gonna say this like we're all you kids, still look we're all young kids well you're not old you still don't look that like some of the, some people age. Don't, do not follow that line. Let's not talk about my looks. <laughs> let's not. Let's not. All I can say is that you know I haven't done anything in my face. That's all I can say. So, you know, I'm like one of the few people left who's you know decided to let the travel road show itself on my face. Um, yeah, I've been, I mean, I'm a veteran of this business. If you think about it, I've been, I've been in this business a very long time. Yeah. And most people, you know, it's one of those jobs with the highest unemployment rate. Like I interviewed a guy that was one of the, he was on the, he was the president of SAG, uh, Kevin Kilner, probably like 10 years ago he was, and he was telling me like how many people actually can live off acting and actually like make it out of X amount of years. It was, it's unbelievable. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's less than 2% and maybe even maybe even less than 1% end up with a pension. Yeah. I mean, what, what has SAG done for me lately? I mean, I'm, I'm very pro-union and all that, but my union blows. Yeah. Especially the last few years of what, what, what's happened with it. Oh, the health God. insurance. Yeah. yeah. Oh, just, it's just terrible. Just terrible. It's not right. It's yeah. not right. Because there are some people making so much money that they could really make sure that all the other actors get get health care. Come on. Totally. They make too much money to not help fellow actors. Yeah. So I'm a little bit pissed off about the structure, the power dynamic structure of the Screen Actors Guild. Coveted few people who are making over $10 million a, a picture and who are not really giving back. I mean, the hell with those people. And a lot of them, and I'm not going to name names. But a lot of them try to come off like they're these great people. They're not. They can't be. Otherwise, yeah. they'd be helping their fellow actors. Exactly. Because without the other actors, you don't have a movie. No, this, that's another thing that I, I, I don't get. You meet so many celebrities and well-known entities, not just actors, but the above-the-line people who really think very highly of themselves and have zero humility. 
it seems like they never want to confront the aspect of what filmmaking really is. It's a collaborative effort. You can't make the film without the electrician. You can't make the film without the makeup artist. You can't make the film without the grip. You can't make the film without any of these people, the safety people. You can't make the film, period. Look at what happened on Alec Baldwin's film. Yeah. You cannot make that. That it really is a blow, literally a blow. And highlights the need for recognition of the fact that filmmaking is collaborative. We're, we're doing this together. And there needs to be more equity. There really does. No, I totally Some agree. people need to make a lot less. And some people need to make a lot more. Yep. Yeah. I'm on board with that. Yeah. Needs to be a little more democratic. Yeah. Well, no, I know. Unless, <laughs> unless ageist. Unless ageist. It's very ageist. I've been aged out. No, I know. Yeah. There are very few roles available for women my age. And when there is a role, when there is a role for a woman my age, it goes to the same 20 people which means there aren't enough roles and they're only, they're all funneling down to the same people who are all desperate to work. Yeah. So you always see the same people over and over again. The ones that I came up with who are my age, Sharon Stone, you know, those people, they get every role. And so you don't even get a chance. Any, any actor my age, especially actress doesn't even really get a chance. It's terrible. It's It's been offered to somebody to a huge name. Not cool. No, no. You know, it's just the way it is. You have to accept it. There's nothing fair about this business. And if you're going to get into the movie business or the the television business, the acting business, if you're going to get into that business, you have to go into that business with your eyes wide open to what what it is. Yeah. So there's no surprises you don't get let down. That's what this guy, Larry Hankin, he noticed when he was coming up, like when he was acting, he was already older when he started. But like in the 80s, he had a lot of like actress friends and he's like, they would get to 30 and then they would get turned into the mom. So they were like their whole career, their ability to get other acting roles was like shrunken because it was like, all right, you can't play the 20 something anymore. You're playing like a 40 year old. So he's like, there's so many women that I knew. I feel like this one woman he was dating, I forget the name, but he goes, they were making her look older. And I'm like, why would you do that? to somebody they still have an opportunity to act in certain roles yeah yeah and i just read for a movie recently that i didn't get with uh mark Wahlberg, and it's sort of like a blue collar james bond or something and in the movie i didn't get the part in the movie he's considered to be a loser until he finally becomes this big spy with halle berry and I, I auditioned for it. But it was really kind of upsetting. Not that I didn't get the role, but it's kind of upsetting the way that they portrayed the part that I was reading for. And I think that the only reason that I was able to read for it is because maybe some other older actress who's my age didn't want to do it. Because they're making fun of the fact that he's dating an old hag. You know, like, aren't there like actual women you can date that don't, you know, that don't need a cane? you know, that, that, that can remember your name, you know, they were sort of making fun of, of a woman my age. And it just seems so tone deaf given where we're at in the feminist movement today. Yeah. 
Um, it, and it just reminded me that we're absolutely nowhere, that we we really haven't come a long way, baby, at all. Because <laughs> they're still they're still discriminating against women just for being a certain age. It's not right. No, it's, it's not. not. Right because, because there are more of us than anybody. Yep. And we're the ones who buy shit. <laughs> and we're the ones who run shit. You know, we're the ones making decisions that make things happen. That's terrible that they would do that. It's the way it is. It's just the way it is. That, but that's this business, you know, so that you know, I'm glad I never really took it all that seriously. Yeah, I think I always knew it was like, I always knew it was some kind of a weird cesspool with shiny things floating around. <laughs> Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So how about like the music end of it? Like when you're doing all the clubs, wherever you're at, when was the first time you got signed to a record deal? Was that? When did I first get signed? Well, was it I, Warner my, Brothers? Was I, the first one? It was Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. I think that was 1989. Wow. Yeah. I mean, are you going to chronologically? <laughs> no. <laughs> just, just bouncing around. No, I love hearing about how people started because going back to what we talked about, like <clears throat> the the amount of people that are able to make a living doing a creative career, I think it's so fascinating. And I just love hearing how people, you know, get started and the fact that they're able to like sustain it. So even just think about like that you were singing for all those years. And then finally, how do you get noticed just going to clubs or are you sending in like uh, tapes or like records? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, all of that. You're playing clubs, you're playing amphitheaters in Europe. You're, I mean, I was doing all of that. I was, whether or not I had a record deal, I was still making music. Yeah. And then I got a big record deal. And then I got a big publishing deal. And then Prince recorded one of my songs. And, you know, and it's not luck. I mean, there's a lot of work. That oh, it's into. hard work. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it, it all kind of fell into place. Not the way I wanted it to, but, you know, things happen the way they happen. You, you don't, you don't have that much control over it. You really don't. No, there's a few people that make the decisions and you got to just don't have that much control. Even if you're working really hard, you may not ever get a record deal. You know, you could work really, really hard and be really, really talented and never get an agent, never get a, a television series. You know, it, it really is a lot of luck. There's a lot of luck involved. So I don't believe the, the baloney that if you work really hard and, you know, you're going to get somewhere. And I think that's, I think there's chaos in this world. It's just chaos, and and uh, sometimes you get lucky, and sometimes you don't. Yeah, and I don't really think it has that much to do with more than that. Um, and the people who are born into this business, just like the people who are born into big, big money, they're just lucky, you know. And Hollywood is full of people whose parents and grandparents were really big players in Hollywood. Yeah. 
So those people just like, they start up here, you know, they don't have trouble getting an agent right away when they're 16 years old because they're so connected. But for somebody who's not connected or, or somebody like me who went to, you know, the city university of New York on a grant, you know, um, it, the, the, it, the stakes are totally different. You don't, you don't have those connections. So you could work really hard and never get anywhere. And then you could get lucky. You might not get lucky. I, I feel like I got very lucky. I feel like I'm, I'm very, very lucky that I yeah. was able to make a living all these years and I'm still in the business. I feel really fortunate. But I also feel for the people who aren't, you know, and I, I'm also very clear headed of what this business is. And, and looking at the business, it, it doesn't make you feel good about the business. It really doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a crappy business. It's a crappy business with some really wonderful, talented people in it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've had great experiences. Uh, I've been really lucky. I've been really unlucky. I've made a living being a working actor, being a working songwriter, being a working singer, an entertainer for all these years. I'm, I'm just really lucky, but not as lucky as I wanted to be. Yeah. But I'm okay with it. <laughs> No, I just love, I, I think from a young age, I always loved that so much when, I don't know if it was Star Wars, there was something I watched behind the scenes, like on a VHS, like at the end of it, after the credits, and I yeah. saw like so much went into one shot, and I always thought that was so fascinating, and just like how much goes into a 10 second shot at times. It's uh, Depending on what, what kind of movie you're making. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're making a movie with Igmar Bergman, it's two people in a room. Not that much goes into that. If you're making a special effects movie, boy, there's a lot of people behind the scenes doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So besides like the Flamingo Kid, I know you said you love that role, the script and everything about it. Like, is it Mannequin, another movie that you look back yeah. to? No? No, God, no. I know a lot. I know a lot of people who grew up with Mannequin really love that movie, but I, I I didn't find it to be such a great experience. Other than the fact that I learned to absolutely love Philadelphia. I mean, Philly is, Philly is the most amazing city. I love Philly, and for the rest of my life, I will love Philly. Everything about for that way. Yeah. So it was great for me that way because I got I really got to know Philadelphia. That was. That was like a different character for you, like from looking at like different roles that you did. But in that movie, your character goes like insane. If you really think about what your character went through, because obviously your character loved Jonathan, but couldn't feel the fact that like he was in love with a mannequin, which is something. The whole, the whole story is so ridiculous. Well, Andrew McCarthy, I love Andrew McCarthy because he's like a local guy, like where I grew up in Jersey. He's like right the next town over is where he was born and he was here for a while. But yeah, his career is filled with movies like that, like Weekend at Bernie's, like a dead guy that doesn't decompose for, you know, weeks throughout two movies. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, that, that, that movie was a, a weird experience for me because, they they strapped me down every day before wardrobe 
and they wanted to kind of, they wanted to take away my femininity and they wanted to take away my looks that I had at the time. And um, because the word had come back, I mean, this, at the time, this was a big movie for 20th century Fox, you know, and we forget now, but that was like the number one movie in the country, I think for like six weeks. And it had a one, you know, Grammy award winning song. And it was a really big movie at the time. And people still remember it like, Oh my God, mannequin, mannequin. But at the time, it was a little bit heartbreaking for me to have a role where, um, you know, being being young as I was and full of personality as I was, to have me squashed like that because word had come back to the producers that there's like no reason that he would leave her for that character. Um, it just doesn't make any sense why he would leave her. So they had to make me as unattractive as they could. And it was really hard for me at the time because for me at that time, uh, putting me in a size eight and strapping me down with ace bandages to make my body disappear. And it was, it, it, it was not career yeah. making. It was obvious yeah. that they were attempting to make the career of someone else and to squash mine. And I was being buried and I was literally being buried in giant clothes with huge, huge shoulder pads. And, you know, but looking back at that movie, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with the work that I did in it. I really am. I just, I, I like the work that I did in the movie, despite the fact that underneath it all, I really felt that there was a, an inherent unfairness as to how they were portraying me. They didn't really let me shine in that yeah. film. They really didn't. They didn't allow me to shine in the movie. And they could have. Like they allowed Meshach Taylor to shine. But they just didn't want any other girls to shine. Uh, they just wanted it to be about the one girl. And she's very shiny. It's true. And she's wonderful. But, you know, movies often have two people who, who shine. Um, so I thought that that was unfair. I thought that the both the director and, and the producers treated me unfairly on that. Not unfairly in terms of, you know, payment or, or they didn't treat me badly. It's just that the way they portrayed my character was not what I had signed on. Oh, it was totally different. Like, and then it was like a week in, they changed everything. Yeah. We, we had to do a lot of reshoots because in the beginning I was in fabulous clothes because I was a big boss at the competing department store. So I was this very, very elegant, chic woman who was a bit of a hard ass. And that was a really fun role to play, but you know, extremely glamorous. And uh, we reshot all of that to make me look less attractive and cut down the lines. And, and uh, um, so, you know, that, that was a disappointment. But as I've said before, this business is full of disappointments and you have to be happy that you're just working. So, you know, you don't, you don't get to pick and choose what happens in, uh, unless you're a star. And when you're just a working actor, you really don't have much power at all. You don't have any power. So, um, but it was a great experience because... Uh, it all went towards my pension. It was a big, big hit movie. I'm happy with the work that I did in it. Um, I enjoyed my time working with with a lot of really great people, and um, you know, uh, and I more than anything, my love for Philadelphia is uh, is yeah, solid. that's cool. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> the last movie I'm going to ask you about because I watched it for the first time when I interviewed Vernon Wells. Man, I've interviewed him like started pandemic like two years ago, but, uh, the shrimp on the Barbie, that movie is, 
I've never seen that until I interviewed him. And I'm like, how do I miss this Cheech Marin movie? What a like cool, different type of love story for like Cheech Marin to star in. And I, y- you and Vernon, when you guys get caught at the end on the slideshow, man, that is like, her- that'd be like a horrific experience to have that happen in front of a ton of people. Well, the, the jacuzzi scene in the movie became kind of sort of like culty, iconic, yeah. uh, where, you know, I, I step in and the jacuzzi is actually a fish tank in a bar. And so the two of us are flirting in a fish tank that we think is a jacuzzi, but it's actually the fish tank in a bar. And uh, that was a really fun, fun scene to shoot. And he was such a great guy, just a wonderful, wonderful guy, just adoring. Yeah. Uh, it was fun. And that's one of the movies that I did uh, because I really wanted to explore New Zealand and Australia. And I did that movie because I wanted to go to New Zealand and Australia and get paid. And you could do the accent. So from being like such a, such a, like a globetrotter, you can throw on, I bet, so many accents that you haven't even done on film. But in that movie, your accent's great. When you're on, yeah, any and accents are kind of my thing. I've, I've always, yeah. Well, having grown up in so many countries and and being being trilingual um, and, and growing up in Asia and all of that, very at a very young age, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a musical thing almost. I I love accents, and so if you if you play me an accent and I listen to it for like fifteen minutes. I can reproduce it. I can reproduce it. Like, like some people can reproduce bird calls. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's just, it's, it's a talent, you know, that you don't ask for, you know, I don't, I don't even know if you can learn it. I'm not sure. You either have it. It's sort of like people who are like really great athletes. I don't, I don't really think you can learn that. Um, I just, I hear it and I can reproduce it. Do you ever get a chance to do like a really thick, like uh, like a New York accent? Did you ever have to do one of those? Like a thick New York City accent? Like a Brooklyn? Oh, yeah, of course I can. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, in Flamingo Kid, I talk Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, Flamingo Kid, I'm talking like this. I'm a New Yorker from from Far Rockaway or the Bronx or something. Yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) That just like that. Turn it on. That's so great. Oh, yeah. Accents are great. Accents are so much fun. I love them. I just love accents. Uh, so when did you get involved with, with, you know, with help of like animal rescue? Like when did that all start? Oh my goodness. My, my love of animals um, has always Well, you made a there. song about, uh, you made a song at the age of six. So. Yeah. No, but I mean, I mean wild animals. Oh. I don't just mean pets. I mean, I mean wild animals. My first animal rights activism I must have been eh, maybe like eight or nine. <clears throat> and there was a guy, and this was in Thailand, near where I lived. And there was a guy kicking a stray dog down the street, just kicking this poor animal down the street. And the animal was too weak to run away. And a lot of people don't know this who are not Thai people or who are not Southeast Asian. But in Southeast Asia, it's considered the height of rudeness to kick anything or to you know, hit something with your shoe, or to, to show the bottom of your shoe, um, and, and to, to, to put your feet on anything is considered to be extremely offensive. And he was kicking this dog, and I wasn't even thinking. 
But I went up behind him and I kicked him in the butt. I ran up behind him and kicked a grown man in the butt for, for kicking the dog. And I kicked him as hard as I could. And he was shocked that a little white girl had, had kicked him. And he didn't do anything. He was just so shocked. But that's when I realized that if you act and you stand up for an animal who's being abused, you can stop that. You can get in between the animal and the abuser. And I've taken that all the way through to my adult life, all the way to the point of, of going and stopping the production line at a slaughterhouse. So I know that what we need to do if we want to save this planet and save animals from suffering is to be in between the animal abusers and the animal and to put yourself in between that to, to take the blows for them and to, and to take risks in order to not allow animals to be abused. And so that's, that's been something that I felt was the most important aspect of my personality my entire life. I've wanted to protect animals my whole life. Uh, I had a, a, a girlfriend when I was growing up in, in France. This was in rural France where my mother is from, where I would spend my, my holidays and part of the school year when my parents weren't getting along. I must have been five or six. And my best little girlfriend at the time was the daughter of the village butcher. And she had invited me to tea in back of the butcher shop. And she had all the tiny little tea set stuff and we were dressed up in our little dresses. And we're sitting there having tea and delicious pastries here in France. <laughs> And a giant, beautiful black steer walks by me, being led by her father. The most gorgeous animal I had ever laid eyes on. And he looked at me and I looked at him and I will never forget him as long as I live. He was shiny and beautiful. And her father led him to the hangar, hoisted him up, upside down, alive, and then, and then cut him open a lot while he's screaming. And all the guts came out and all the blood splattered, maybe, I don't know, 10 yards from my feet. And I will never, ever get over the look of that animal. The way he looked at me, it's like he looked right through me. And I never, ever wanted to touch anything like that again. Ever. And I think that that look that he gave me is probably one of the last things I'll ever see because I can't forget yeah. that steer. Yeah. And I was only about five. And, and so I've, you know, animals are, we share our planet with them and it's not fair what we're doing to them. It's just not fair. It's wrong. It's wrong. If we don't have to, if we don't have to hurt them, we shouldn't. And all these people who tell me, yeah, but, you know, animals eat animals. Well, yeah, but, you know, we share 99 point something percent of our DNA with primates. And we are primates. And we're vegan by nature. So I don't buy it. I don't think we have to harm animals. That's like in Jersey, like they build, there's like, it's the garden state, but there's like nothing left. People are always like, well, I wonder why deer are always running on the highways. It's like, well, they have nowhere to go. Every... There's subdivisions getting 
and acres of property get knocked down. Like it's crazy when you think about like even the ta- little town I grew up in, like how much no woods are there now. It's insane. It is insane. And, and, and when you think that there are people who have a really great time shooting them, I couldn't imagine it. They think it's really fun to shoot them. Um, um, they, they think it's really fun to shoot a deer and then have her babies just die of starvation. I mean, to me, hunters are sociopaths. Yeah. I, I don't care what anybody thinks. They're just so sociopaths. They really Insane. are. I think we should be able to share our planet with, with other species. And uh, we've got too many people and not enough animals. And we're the, we're the awful species that have ruined oh, everything, yeah. not them. We're the ones who have destroyed everything, not them. And, and they have the same most basic desires and fears and, and joys and anguish that, that, that we have. You know, they all want to they all want to feel sun on their face. They want to be with their families. They want to be with their friends. They want liberty and they and they like to play and they also feel anguish and loneliness and pain like we do. And we ought to just leave them the hell alone. You know, stop destroying everything. For yeah. Them. Stop it. So, yeah, this doesn't make me super popular in Hollywood, but I don't care. No. No, I can sleep at night. You know, I've been vegan for over 20 years now. I'm, I'm good with my conscience. Yeah. One thing I I have to ask, because obviously, like, your, your singing career, I got to ask about, so Love Potion number nine. Now, is that something you got approached to do the end credits song for, or is that something you already had laid down? No, no. My friend Jed Lieber, like one of the most talented guys I know, who I'm working on a project with right now, uh, called me up and he was he was making that, doing the music for the movie with Dale Lana. And he asked me to come in and sing it. And I did it in a character voice. So it was kind of acting, which is, I think, why he hired me to do it, because he needed an actress kind of voice. It has such a great flow to it, the way you sing it. I love that song. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, that was a that was a fun project to work on. Yeah, really fun. And you know that song's been done so many times, but that you know, Jed's just such a great producer, really great producer, and it, and it is a great. Song. No, it's cool that you had the opportunity mm-hmm. to do that because I think it's so cool when you yeah when you get a chance to sing a song because I'm sure you, obviously in your career like be singing in clubs I'm sure there's songs that you covered, but to have it at the end of a movie because that's the one that kind of like kicked off her career. Because right after that, she did Speed, and then the rest is history. But such a great flick. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Carol, what what do you think you've – obviously, you have your love of animal activism and acting and singing. Was there anything else that you were going to do? Did you ever have, like, a, a fallback? I know you went to school for political science, right? Yeah, I did. Was there any fallback career that you had in mind just in case, like, if this acting and – acting for travel thing didn't work well you know i've been writing a lot oh I mean, yeah that's your writing too book. Yeah. yeah and i am i've done a lot of writing with a specialty in, in in animal rights activism i i've kind of been chronicling the animal rights movement all these years so i have a lot of stuff that i've been writing about about that movement it's a social justice yeah. movement and and i you know i've become a writer doing that so um that's kind of been Another career that I've been yeah. working on is writing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, you know, 
when you're in your 20s, it's really hard to know what you're going no, to do. Yeah, I mean, I almost think it's kind of unfair to have somebody make up their mind about what they're going to do when they're when they're 21. It doesn't seem right. You know, if you want to have a really balanced life, you have to have a lot of different experiences. And if you throw yourself into one thing really early, you might not experience something else. And I think fortunately, uh, in, in this country, you can kind of reinvent yourself and do something else later. Um, like I'm, I'm looking into taking a course now and getting my certification for um, plant-based nutrition so that, I mean, I've done all the studying yeah. on it, but to actually get certified so that people won't just look at me and roll their eyes. They'll, they'll know that I have a certification, like, but I actually do know it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there shouldn't be any limits. No. Um, I think political science probably, you know, I was thinking at the time diplomacy um, because I had lived in so many countries and I had a facility with languages and I thought, yeah, you know, diplomacy is good for me. You know, that would be good for me. And now looking back, I, I, I don't think I have the personality for diplomacy because I don't really think I could really hold my yeah. tongue. I don't really think I'd be able to sit across from, um, from a state department person who I disagreed with virulently yeah. and wouldn't want my opinion. Of them. So looking back, if I was to redo anything, I'd probably go to law school. And um, I think I want to be a lawmaker, you know, to actually affect change, real change uh, to make things better. And then hope that people would vote for me so I could get laws passed. Well, you are making change or you're animal activists. And like, at that young age, you know? Well, well, I have gotten a lot of laws passed here. But if I could go back and redo my education, I probably would not sit in the least Jasper Theater Institute. <laughs> I'd probably go and get a law degree, get a JD, and then go and, and become a lawmaker so that I could actually get those laws passed, like way yeah. more laws passed. Like here, we got rid of fur, we got rid of the circus, we got rid of uh, dogs and kittens and puppies and pet stores. Um, we've got a spay neuter law here, you know, we're working that's on great. all this stuff, but if I was to redo anything, I think that that's what I would do. Not that law is so fascinating, but because it gives you the credentials to be able to go in and get elected and then get shit yep. done. You're awesome. I'm so happy that we were able to connect and, uh, chat and hear about your career and some of the things I wouldn't have known, like the, yeah, the hot commie. But one thing that was so funny when I Googled your name, like, because I always do research on folks and I looked on your website, IMDb, just watching like movies and shows you were in and everything. But I Google your name and then I see Simon Callis, your son in law. Is that real? No. That's not real. Okay, good. Simon Cowell is not my son in law. And his mother in law, her name is Carol Davis. She was born the same year as I was. The same spelling of oh my, my name. It also was born in London. <laughs> so no matter how many times I write to Wikipedia yeah. and send my passports, including my English passport oh my with my middle name, they will not take that down. And so people think that I have kids and that Simon Cowell is my son-in-law and that I've got billions of dollars. And 
And, and, but the worst thing about being mistaken for that woman, the very worst thing is that she wears fur. <laughs> I don't want to be associated with that. And people have actually sent me pictures of her and she kind of looks really? like me. A little That's bit. crazy. She looks a little bit like me. Uh, and we have the same name. We're both born in London in the same year. So, you know, it's understandable why Wikipedia yeah. would fuck up on this. But the fact that she wears fur and that people send me emails with pictures of me, it's not me, wearing fur, that you hypocrite, you're not a real, you know, it's not me. And no, I'm not a grandmother. I don't have, I don't have any children. I don't have any children. And I have no son-in-law. And certainly not Simon Cowell. And if he was my son-in-law, well, we'll leave it we'll at leave that. We'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at uh, that. We'll just leave thank it. Thank you, Carol. Yeah. I can't believe you didn't ask me about the Prince music. Oh, well, we kind of talked. You know, so real quick, one thing I wanted to know, because sometimes I feel like the, the things in people's careers that they get asked most about, they don't like talking about. Oh, yeah. You know okay. what I mean? So I don't want to like, when I interviewed Tim Russ, who was on Voyager, he was like, I talk about that all the time. So we talked about his entire career and didn't talk about Star Trek. And at the end, he's like, thank uh-huh. you, Doug. I really appreciate that you didn't ask that question uh-huh. that people always get. But no, real quick, I always, I think it's fascinating. Like, how does your song get in front of Prince? Did you lay down the track and then they heard it and said? I did more than lay down a track. I brought him a fully written song. And, and two years later, he wanted it and he offered to buy it for 25 grand. And I said, no. And I got a lawyer. And what I didn't know at the time was that I, I had some leverage and I didn't even know that I had leverage because he had already recorded it on the sign of the times album. He had already recorded it when they had made me an offer of $25,000 for the rights to the song. So basically Prince wanted to own the song and take my name off of it and make it as if he had written it, sang it, produced it, played all the instruments on it, written the lyrics and the music. And he didn't. So the lesson that I learned from that and what I try to tell young songwriters is believe in yourself. You know, that's one of the times where I believed in myself. I believed in my song I didn't want to sell the rights to my song. I wanted to own the rights to my music. And so I made a compromise deal that gave me uh, publishing rights and writer's rights and credit for writing the song that I shared with him, even though I wrote the song. And it was a compromise deal, not the greatest deal, but a really good deal that at least for history has it right that I wrote that song. And he couldn't deny it. But the important thing to remember is, is that he just wanted to buy it outright and never talk to me again. And because I had the leverage without knowing it, that he had already recorded it and that Warner Brothers wanted that song on the album. I got I got a lot of what I wanted, which was, you know, my publishing rights and my credit. So the lesson is stick up for yourself if you're a songwriter. Don't sell your writer's credit. 
Don't sell your publishing rights. Don't don't sell out. Hang in there and believe in yourself as a songwriter. I did. And 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 that's, you know, and that's afforded me a lot over the years because that record is still selling a lot. And it was up for a Grammy uh, just last week. The album was up for best historical album. Oh my God. Um, so we were nominated for a Grammy. We could have won a, a Grammy. I could have won a Grammy last week. Oh my week. God. Um, not me personally, but the album that I participated yeah. in. So I think that's a really important aspect of certainly of my career, but also an important facet in Prince's career. And, and it would lead you to think hard on how many other songs did he buy? Yeah. How many other songs did he try to buy? I knowing that it happened to me, I can only assume that he had done that before and that he did it afterwards and that people succumbed to, to, to the deal, you know, to a lousy deal. Jeez. And the thing that left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth about it, not to denigrate Prince's immense talent, because Prince was a musical genius um, and probably the greatest performer in pop history. This I fully acknowledge. But what, what was he thinking that he, that he could just buy something and then pass it off as, as his own? And, and why would he, with all of his talent, why would he erase someone who also had some talent? Maybe not as talented as him, but who's somebody who legitimately wrote a song. And I'm not even talking about myself anymore because I did get yeah. credit. But how many other people, how many others are there? And, and I think that that's an important aspect of his career and of his personality that people are afraid to discuss because A, he's dead. And B, no one wants to hear anything bad about somebody they revere. Yeah. People are imperfect. And as talented as he was, he was an imperfect person who tried to make an unfair deal with me, possibly with others, probably with others. And that's exactly the kind of deal that he railed against with Warner Brothers when he wrote Slave on his face. It's the kind of deal that he himself would never have signed. So why would he ask someone like me who was, you know, not not a superstar. Why would he ask me to give up my legitimate rights to my own music? It's an interesting, it's an interesting aspect of, of his personality. Yeah. Well, that's ego. Out. That's what like Stallone. Stallone did that with uh, the book for the movie Cobra. He convinced the author to republish the book and put his name as a co-author. And he wrote nothing. Yeah, know he that. didn't write anything of it. I interviewed a writer that wrote uh, one of the Seagal movies. Seagal tried to take the guy's script. It was the I shouldn't know the name off the top of my head. Mark for Death. This guy Michael Grace told me, yeah, Seagal tried to rewrite the script by scribbling out words like a kid trying to steal a paper. Like, oh, instead of using this word, let me go to the thesaurus. And then he tried to pass it off as his own. <laughs> And tried to get right, got, tried to get full writing credit on a movie. It happens more often than you think. Luckily for it happens a yeah. lot. It happens a lot, and it and it almost happened yeah. to me. So 
That's great go. that you but were I able to find out. How did how did it get out? That must have been like some kind of mistake that somebody let it out that Prince already recorded that because that gives you so much leverage to know that it's already laid out. No, no, I didn't know that. He oh, I thought it. somebody told you that. Oh, okay. No, I had no idea. That's what I was saying. I didn't even know he had recorded it. I had leverage without even knowing that oh I had leverage. His lawyers were telling me, well, we're not going to use the song then. And I said, well, then don't use yeah. the song. And that, that's how sure I was about the fact that I had a really good song. I had no idea. He That's amazing. It. You believed in yourself and it like worked out even more. I believed so. in myself as a kid, as a kid, I believed in myself. And that's why I always tell young songwriters, believe in yourself. Just believe in yourself. Just because somebody's a star and somebody has power over you doesn't make them yeah. right. It doesn't make them right. So the lesson I learned is believe yeah. in yourself. Yeah. Even if other people are telling you that it's stupid to believe in yourself, just do it. <laughs> just believe in yourself and, and, and you can, and you can be credited and paid. But what I want is I want journalists to go and investigate that. Like how many other pieces of music are out there that, you know, that, that was, that was bought yeah. out. Um, it should be investigated. I would love a but, Netflix you know, or Hulu doc on that. Because I'm sure those people probably were forced to sign an NDA. So it was like the song was never there. I'm sure that that's what happened with people. NDAs are vile. I, I think they're – it's crazy. NDAs are a vile, vile yeah. document. There should never be any such thing as a document that forces you to shut up about the I know. Oh, no. No, it's bad. It's really bad. Anyway – I'm, I'm, I'm glad I was able to talk about it because I think it's a, it's an important lesson for totally. young songwriters. Yeah, absolutely. And young writers in general. Don't sell it. I'm telling you, if you ever hear those stories, there's one about Paul Hogan who did Crocodile Dundee movies. That guy, he tried to do yeah. the, the third movie. He did the same thing. He took the guy. The guy actually works at ESPN now, this guy, Matthew Barry. Him, his writing partner, wrote Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. Paul Hogan did the same thing. A guy that I'm not saying people don't need more money. That's there's greed, but he did the same thing. He goes, Oh no, that wasn't, I thought of that joke. And then they're like, no, we wrote the script and gave it to you. And he's like, no, I thought of this whole thing. I told you to write this. And they had to go to WGA court and they had to like go in front of a board of judges and everything. So greed. Yeah. We need more people with integrity. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and more people also who are willing to see the truth about people who they venerate. Yeah. A lot of the people that audiences venerate are not all what they are cracked up to be. They could be really talented, but there could be something not quite right with their business oh, practices. Oh, yeah. 100%. And it, and it, and it shouldn't be you – sh you shouldn't keep that from the public. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be some terrible secret and things, things need to come out. Yeah. They really do. Yeah. Carol, you rock. I'm so happy I got a chance to chat with you. You're great. Yeah, it was really, really fun talking with you, too. Is your jaw still down on the ground? Yeah. That Prince story is wild. And you can think about, there's so many artists that probably have stories like that. 
But just the fact that he was going to try to just steal the song, steal the song from Carol Davis. No way. And how about Mannequin? The way, because she is obviously, she's gorgeous and she does not age. She looks exactly the same, charming. And the fact that they had to do that because she was out wowing Kim Cattrall because they were like, why would Andrew McCarthy leave, you know, you know, why would he go after a mannequin when he has Roxy? So they had to make her look different, which is kind of sad because that was a big film for her. And uh, how about Piranha 2, the hot commie? She was basically a slave in, on a farm and she had to get out of there. <laughs> no scrubbing toilets for Carol. Hot commie. So do me a favor. Your homework. Write it down. I know it's summertime. You might not be in school, but I'm. We're, me and Jamie are giving you homework. And it's to watch Piranha 2, The Spawn. It's free on YouTube. I'll put it in the episode notes. We're all watching. Me, Jamie, and our guest Nick is back. We made him watch Munchie. Munchie Strikes Back. Rocky Five. Ghoulies Go to College. So he's back for a fifth time. And uh, we gave him a doozy. And it's free on YouTube. We watched the, the director's cut. So I don't know if really James Cameron went back and put it together, but... There it is for you. It's an hour and 24 minutes of mind-blowing stuff. You're going to... Things in this movie I never thought I'd see, but I'm glad I saw them. So don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast, follow us on all social media at Sequels Only, and don't forget to check out our website, SequelsOnly.com. Good night. Good night, guys.